Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Faster Fed, Jay Powell set to speed up the stimulus withdrawal. Super spreader, the WHO warns Omicron is growing at a, quote, unprecedented rate. And power play, the Kremlin describes talks between President Xi and Putin as very positive. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. And warm welcome, as always, to our first movers around the globe as we deck the halls with innovative guests and holiday cheer. But investors today singing from a high-stakes hymn sheet, and it's a more cautious Yuletide carol. C stands for Central Bank Bonanza, the Fed poised to announce its long-awaited stimulus exit, a.k.a. Stexit. And rate hack outlook today, too. Will it be tinsel or will it be torment? A for accelerating inflation. This week's hot read on U.S. factory level prices makes the Fed's post-transitory job tougher. U.K. consumer prices now at a 10-year high, too. R for retail sales. Fresh data shows Americans with perhaps a bit less of an urge to splurge. November numbers a touch weaker than expected. We've got all the details coming up. O, of course, for Omicron, as the World Health Organization warns of an unprecedented spread. And that, of course, remains a key risk. L for landmark levels, a losing week so far for stocks, but the S&P 500 still less than 2% away from record highs. As you would expect, a quiet pre-market today ahead of the Federal Reserve announcements and decision. Does the once patient Powell evolve into a peevish Powell? I was looking for P P words there. Struggling, the real risk is if they decide a more forceful response is needed, action on prices, which would make him party pooper Powell to investors if no one else. A softer session in Asia amid fears that the U.S. will add more Chinese firms to its restricted list. Chinese retail sales growth much weaker than expected, too, as COVID restrictions weigh on consumer activity. Where weakness lies, however, stimulus often follows. It's a delicate dance for global policymakers. And that's where we begin. The driver's always light on her feet. However, (laughs) Christine Romans joins us now. You knew I was going to do that, Christine Weaker on the retail sales. Pricing pinching here. What do we make of these numbers? And maybe some supply issues as well. Mm. I mean, look, we're heading into kind of a new phase here, right? And I think this corresponds with exactly what you're seeing in the job market and some of those other indicators. So you have a little bit weaker here on the retail sales front. Just illustrates, right, the Powell pivot, <laughs> to, put, to put my own alliteration on the Fed sheet for you, <laughs> um, and, the, and, the, and the very delicate dance they have to do from being the pandemic shock absorber to now inflation fighter, Julia. Yes, I prefer the pal pivot as opposed to peevish pal, party pooper pal. Uh, yeah, I was trying. Um, what do we think of Jay Powell? Because, as I mentioned, it is a delicate balancing art. You've got the sort of eyes on COVID. The suggestion is perhaps it may not be as, in, uh, as, as dangerous in terms of an infection, but it is highly prolific in terms of the number of infections. But inflation's hot and they have to react. It's time to it's time to move on inflation. I mean, yeah. that is that Overtime. is the consensus here. Overtime, right? And maybe hopefully yeah. they're not behind the curve or not too much behind the curve. And there, there'll be a lot of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking on that word transitory. And maybe they were too sanguine for too long on the effects uh, of inflation. But I think, Julia, as you know, when we parse these statements in these meetings, sometimes we're looking for very nuanced changes in words. I think this time it's going to be quite dramatic what the Fed is setting us up for. This is a big deal 
here today. It's a, definitely a new territory the Fed is in. Taper, taper, taper more quickly, right? You cannot be tapering into a red-hot economy, or you cannot be still buying bonds at this rate into a red-hot economy. They might have to taper more quickly. The Fed chief has even hinted that. And then rate hikes for next year. But look, I want to show you the inflation numbers. I mean, these inflation numbers from the factory level that we've talked about to the consumer level, these are real. These are biting. Even when you talk about, you know, these are adjusted for, for last year, you know, when you look at the the comparison from last year, um, some of these inflation, uh, these inflation categories are still just still look pretty bad here. And then the Fed chief himself has said the economy is red hot. Um, and in fact, um, you know, inflation looks like it's here to say let's listen to what he said just a month ago. But at this point, the economy is very strong and inflationary pressures are high. And, and it is therefore appropriate, in my view, to consider wrapping up the taper of our asset purchases, which we actually announced at the November meeting, perhaps a few months sooner. So he has telegraphed, I think, exactly what we're going to hear today about how quickly the Fed is going to shift to inflation fighting mode and, and when, they're, when they're going to start making these changes. Yeah, better that you go sooner rather than later and then you don't have to backload it all, go incredibly quickly and perhaps heighten the risk of some kind of recessionary right. environment. Yeah. Right. Getting it, do, getting it wrong, it. getting it wrong, um, getting it wrong here has implications for everyone, whether you're a stock market investor, whether you own a company in the United States or around the world, whether you're borrowing money, whether you're trying to finance a home. I mean, the Fed decision here and central bank decisions around the world, quite frankly, are really, really the most important lever right now outside of health, right? We've already got the vaccines. We know what mitigation is for the coronavirus part of it. Now, I mean, the Fed, the inflation fighting is all right here in the Fed and with central banks. Yeah. And it has global spillover effects as well, what they do and what they don't do, quite frankly. Christine Romans, thank you. Nice to see you. Underestimate this virus at your peril, quote, words from the World Health Organization, which warned Omicron is spreading at an unprecedented rate. It says the disease shouldn't be dismissed as mild and the burden on the World Health Resources could be overwhelming. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Clearly, stern words. Give us some context on the rate of spread that we're seeing, Elizabeth. You know, Julia, I feel like it was just yesterday that you and I were talking about how quickly what we called at the time the UK variant was spreading. And then we talked about how quickly (laughs) the Delta variant was spreading. And it was like one was worse after another. I'm sorry to say we're continuing that trend. Omicron is even faster than Delta. Let's take a look at something that Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, said yesterday. She said that in some countries, rates are doubling approximately every two days. That is a very fast growth. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci here in the U.S. has said, you know, we expect this to become the dominant uh, variant at some point. We've seen that happen, right? The original corona was replaced with what we called at the time the U.K. variant. That was replaced uh, by Delta. And it could very well be that, that sooner rather than later, Omicron will replace Delta. Yeah. And this is the key. We even if, and the anecdotal evidence suggests, and you and I were talking about the South African, the latest South African study yesterday, that this is a milder version of what we consider in our minds as, as the COVID virus. It's not a reason not to still take all the precautions. That's right. And I know that it's, it, it, might, it's, it might be some relief to say, oh, well, a not so bad version 
of COVID is going to take over the world, that maybe that's a good thing. And that's really the wrong way to look at it. And here's why. When it spreads very, very quickly to sort of, you know, all sorts of places and, and, and goes quicker than anyone could have imagined, it's going to reach people for whom it will be a problem. It's going to reach people who have weak immune systems. It's going to reach the elderly. You know, before we sort of did our best to protect those people, but if it's that transmissible, that may not be quite as possible. The other thing is that even a mild variant is going to put a strain on our healthcare systems. People are going to feel symptoms of COVID. They're going to find out that someone they know has COVID. So they're going to go and get tested. And at least in the United States, testing is, is really, you know, has some snags to it. They're going to go see their doctor. I mean, all of that puts a strain on healthcare systems, even if people don't, hopefully don't end up in the hospital. Yeah, and when you've got virulent spread, and we were hearing yesterday again from um, the head of the South African hospitals, it's 4.2 times more transmissible. So that is going to put a greater magnitude of numbers out there, people going to their doctors, to your point, even if it's a milder version, even if it is, the numbers still here are, are great. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Cohen. And I mean great in terms of magnitude, not great as in good. Elizabeth Cohen. Thank right. you. Right. Very clear here. Right. <laughs> Thank you. A show of solidarity, Russia calling Vladimir Putin's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping very positive, quote, after they held a virtual summit earlier today. This comes as both face mounting pressure from the United States and NATO over Ukraine, Taiwan and many other issues. Selena Wang joins us with more. And on many of these issues, these two leaders and the nations are firmly aligned. Selena, what more did we hear from this one hour meeting? Well, Julie, out of this meeting, you had both of the leaders publicly praising their strong relationship. Putin even calling the China-Russia relationship a, quote, model of cooperation for the 21st century, while Xi Jinping said the two countries will continue to firmly support each other. So this was really the leaders creating this unified front as their relationships with the United States, with the West, are deteriorating. It was a show of solidarity, especially towards Washington, as they are facing increasing tensions, China facing tensions over technology, trade, human rights concerns, Russia facing tensions and pressure, of course, over the buildup of troops near the border with Ukraine. And across the board, you can see the ties between China and Russia deepening. Already major trading partners, they are working together on building a lunar space station. They are striking energy deals. They're also beefing up their military cooperation. In October, Chinese and Russian military ships teamed up to circle around Japan. So this is across the board, and the meeting really reflected that deepening tie, as well as how these two leaders are increasingly on the same page on a wide variety of international issues as well. Both countries condemning and criticizing Biden's summit for democracy. On top of that, while you have the United States and other Western countries boycotting, announcing diplomatic boycotts of the Beijing Winter Olympic Games, Putin out of this meeting saying he's excited to looking forward to attending the Winter Games and meeting Xi Jinping face to face. Take a listen here to what else Putin had to say. This allows us to thoroughly discuss the development of Russian-Chinese relations of comprehensive partnership and strategic interaction. I consider these relations to be a real model of interstate cooperation in the 21st century. I would like to note that we support each other on issues of international sports cooperation, including the rejection of any attempts to politicize sports and the Olympic movement. I have no doubt that the Games will be held at the highest level, as China is capable of. 
This Julia meeting also really emphasized this close personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Putin, with Xi calling Putin an, quote, old friend, adding that they've met 37 times since 2013, while Putin referred to Xi Jinping as his, quote, dear friend. And also, Xi Jinping told Putin he's also looking forward to that face-to-face meeting and said, quote, would like to join hands with you together for the future. Julia. Yes, that's what comes in when you've been in power for many many years. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Authorities in Hong Kong say they've evacuated more than 700 people from a high-rise building that caught fire. At least 13 people were injured and some reported feeling sick after inhaling smoke. Firefighters have extinguished the flames and are investigating the cause. We get more details now from CNN's Christy Lou Stout. Here in Hong Kong, emergency workers have rescued hundreds of people after a fire broke out at a high-rise commercial building. At one point, 350 people were trapped on the roof of Hong Kong's World Trade Center before firefighters put out the blaze. 770 people were evacuated. At least 13 people are injured. The World Trade Center is a commercial building in the city's Wan Chai District at Causeway Bay, one of Hong Kong's busiest shopping areas. It's an office tower and shopping mall with a number of restaurants inside. And according to an initial government report, the fire broke out at around lunchtime, 12.37 p.m. today, and then it spread from a switchboard on the first floor. A CNN team outside the building spoke to eyewitnesses and people who were evacuated, including Hong Kong resident Winnie Yun. How do you feel after getting out of the fire scene? I took the lead on the time. But no more, no more people tell me uh, on the fire. But now I so thank you very much for the God I'm safe. She is one of the over 700 people evacuated from the building, but the cause of the fire is under investigation. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Officials in Haiti are pleading for blood donations and other aid after a fuel tanker exploded on Monday in the country's second largest city. At least 62 people were killed, many of whom were trying to collect fuel directly from the truck when the blast happened. CNN's Matt Rivers has the latest. Well, yet another tragedy that Haiti is now forced to deal with after a fuel tanker erupted in the northern city of Capaitien. Uh, Dozens of people were killed as a result of this explosion. Dozens more were injured. The mayor of Capaitien telling CNN he is urgently calling for people to donate blood because of so many people being in the hospital with such severe injuries. Uh, What appeared to happen here, according to uh, the mayor, is that people were coming to this fuel tanker in Capaitien Uh, because there was a leak and people were coming to collect fuel uh, for themselves. It's so unclear what caused this explosion, but it was massive uh, and it obviously had a huge impact on all the people that were around that tanker. It also had a big impact on the buildings that were around there. We know at least 50 buildings, according to the mayor, were damaged as a result of this, uh, many of which will have to be demolished, according to the mayor, uh, because of the level of damage sustained by uh, the flames and, and this explosion. But I think it's very important here to add the context of what's happening in Haiti. There has been a crippling gasoline shortage, a fuel shortage going on 
for months in Haiti. Remember, this is a country that cannot rely on a reliable uh, electricity grid. And as a result, many, many people use gas, use generators every day for basic things like running refrigerators, keeping things cold, all the way up to industries will use diesel generators uh, to keep the lights on. This shortage has crippled the country in a lot of ways, and it's made many people desperate, desperate enough to go after a fuel tanker that was leaking fuel simply because many people are just desperate to get any fuel they can put in their generators uh, that they rely on for so many different parts of their lives. This explosion, a horrific consequence of what is a nationwide gas shortage that has affected so many people. Matt Rivers, CNN, Mexico City. The U.S. president is heading to Kentucky later today. Joe Biden will survey the damage caused by the weekend's deadly tornadoes and meet with victims and deliver remarks. At least 88 people were killed in the storms that hit parts of the Midwest and the South, 74 in Kentucky alone. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is cutting his overseas trip to Southeast Asia short after a reporter traveling with him tested positive for coronavirus. Blinken has cancelled meetings in Thailand and will head back to the U.S. He and his senior staff have tested negative. Still to come here on First Move, curb chaos. The U.K. lifts South Africa travel restrictions, but is the damage already done? I speak to the head of the Tourism Council. And from trash to treasure, the Israeli clean tech firm turning household waste into a better form of plastic. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Forget about Santa Claus. Fetcher Jay Powell is coming to town and we'll know soon if he's feeling naughty or nice. Market action, not so merry as we await the Fed's announcement on how fast it will pull back stimulus and when it might begin raising rates. All this after a volatile session Tuesday with the Nasdaq falling more than 1%. Interest rate sensitive tech investors increasingly worried that the Fed might tighten aggressively to tame inflation. The counter risk, of course, is COVID, and that continues to complicate the policy paths for all central banks around the world. The IFO Institute for Economic Research warning this morning that Germany's economy could fall into recession early next year as supply chain issues and lockdowns put pressure on the economy, something, of course, the European Central Bank will keep firmly in mind ahead of their meeting and announcements tomorrow. Now, as you've heard, the Omicron spreading at an unprecedented rate. Travel restrictions appear more pointless, it seems, by the day. The First Nation to acknowledge that fact, it seems, the UK. And it's now removed all 11 African countries that were on its red travel list. That will come as a huge relief to nations like South Africa, which heavily rely on tourism from nations like Britain. About 450,000 UK travellers visit South Africa in a typical year. Tourism generates more than $16 billion and supports more than 700,000 direct jobs. To discuss all this, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Chifa Chivengwa. He's the CEO of the Tourism Council South Africa. Chifi, were fantastic to have you on the show. As I mentioned to you just before we, we came back from the break, I wish it were under better circumstances. What's your response to the decision by the UK to remove South Africa from that red list? Well, it is good news that the UK has removed South Africa from the red list. It's something that we have been lobbying uh, the UK government uh, as well as the mission here in South Africa for them to reconsider their decision. So it's good news. 
It may be a little bit late because most people have already made their Christmas plans, but nonetheless, it gives us direction and confidence that uh, those that want to come to South Africa in the next uh, you know, few weeks uh, are able to come through. Uh, and hopefully we don't repeat the same mistake of uh, putting South Africa on the red list. It is welcome news. It will go a long way in restoring uh, the recovery of tourism. Let's talk about that because I mentioned it's 750,000 direct jobs, one and a half million jobs. So it is critical. And the UK is a huge part of the tourism industry. What did you see in terms of booking cancellations once these measures came into place? And what hopes do you have for, for those that perhaps were hoping to come now saying, OK, we'll still go? Well, what we have seen is that in the in the first 24 hours since uh, uh, the red listing of South Africa and uh, other countries following suit, uh, we saw that a billion rand worth of booking in the first 24 hours were cancelled. And when we look and extrapolate, uh, we have seen that uh, you know almost 400 million US dollars could have been lost uh, because of this red listing. So what we're hoping for is that we don't talk about the red listing again. And also, more importantly, that other countries that still have South Africa uh, on their red list, including the USA and Canada and many others across the European Union, will reconsider their decisions the same way they considered their decision when they followed the UK in terms of red listing South Africa. Because we are dependent on tourism. It's an important part of our economic uh, you know, development. And there are many people that are employed through tourism. As we speak now, we have around 470,000 people that have lost their job because of uh, COVID-19. So we need to recover, we need to get people back at work, both in urban areas and rural areas, and we appeal to both all the nations that have uh, really red-listed South Africa to reconsider their decision the same way the UK has done and restore travel and relations between South Africa and uh, many other countries in the world. As you said, uh, it was vitally important that you were talking to the government, that you were trying to convince them that what happened was the wrong decision. And clearly, I'm sure those discussions are being had with governments in Canada, in the United States in particular, too. How hopeful are you and what are you hearing from them about timing, potentially, or how they're thinking about their decision and whether or not to, to remove those restrictions in the near term? Well, we do hope that, uh, you know, the removal of South Africa happens immediately because when they impose the restriction, it happened immediately after the UK uh, imposed the restriction. So we are hoping that, you know, all these governments are going to be sitting down, reconsider their decision as soon as possible uh, and uh, really restore the relations uh, between, uh, you know, ourselves and, and this country. So it's not something that uh, needs time because it didn't need time in the first place when the imposition was done. And another thing that's positive is that we have released a lot of information in South Africa to the international community about the Omicron variant in terms of uh, whether the vaccines are effective and whether it's, it's severity and many other things that are important in decision making. And that information can be used to speed up the decision making process and get more people uh, to travel into South Africa by way of removing South Africa from the red listing. And we hope that's done immediately. And that's why we're appealing to everyone, the lawmakers in the US, in Canada, in the European Union, to speed up the process so that you know we can start the recovery of tourism here in South Africa and other countries within the Southern Africa region. We are dependent on tourism. It's important to our economy. Yeah, and I know. And you're passionately reiterating the message and, and we, we hear you, I, I assure you. Um, the challenge here is that what we're seeing now is, is the virus 
and the spread of the virus escalating. It's not just in South Africa. It's all over the world now when we're seeing those case numbers continue to rise. Um, and I think one of the things came out of this as we were discussing uh, the scientists that had come forward and said, look, we've identified this other variant is the level of vaccinations. And, and in South Africa, I believe it's less than a quarter of, of people that are now vaccinated. How prolific are vaccinations for those people that are, are working in the tourism industry? Because for tourists deciding to come to South Africa, even today, they want to know that when they come, they're safe. How can you convince those tourists and you have your moment now that, that it is safe to come? And I, I don't necessarily mean the virus. I just mean the people that they're going to be interacting with, too. No, absolutely. Within the tourism sector uh, and the entire value chain, uh, we have been encouraging our staff to be vaccinated. There are properties that have 100% vaccination rate. Others are coming up at the 80% and so forth and so on. So you can be rest assured that the value chain of tourism here in South Africa is vaccinated and many people are still on the queue to be vaccinated and it's safe to come through. We have robust protocols that we've put in place over 20 months ago and we've never been the source of the spread because our protocols are clear, they are followed, uh, and compliance is high. So it means that anyone who wants to come to South Africa, you're going to be meeting people in the tourism industry that are vaccinated. They are following protocols. We wear our masks, we social distance, we sanitize everywhere, and we take a temperature everywhere. So we have protocols that are robust, and you should be assured that coming to South Africa, you're coming to a very safe destination where you don't have to worry much. And of course, we're going to make sure that you also wear a mask, you social distance and follow the protocols and norms and standards as we have them here in South Africa. Yeah, the message there, I think we get it. You're safe and you're, um, you're ready for business. And wow, I've been there at this time of year. South Africa is amazing at this time of year. Um, and we all know that. Sir, great to have you with us. We, uh, we hope people have the confidence to come back and that those jobs come back there too. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running. Investors preparing for a whipsaw Wednesday. We're gearing up for whatever it is the Fed have to say. How much support might get snatched away? And when the first rate hike will come into play or if COVID spread will force further delay. Lots more on investors' holiday plate as well. New numbers showing U.S. retail sales up 0.3% in November, weaker than expected, but still the fourth straight monthly rise. And let's be clear, I make that around 16% higher year on year. Context matters. Retail sales giving us even more to unpack with online retailer Boxed. The bulk buy e-commerce firm has been busy. It went public on Thursday last week. It moved into the New York fresh food delivery market and it has teamed up with Google. And that last part is key. Boxed is not just changing the customer face side of shopping. It's also revolutionizing the tech on the back end. Joining us now is Che Wong. He's the co-founder and CEO of Boxed. Fantastic to have you on the show. We have much to discuss, so I'll get cracking. Firstly, on the retail sales front, because you just heard me reading there about the numbers. What are you seeing, whether it's from individual customers or from the business to business part of what you're uh, operating at as well? Yeah, so from the uh, B2C component of what we're seeing, uh, that continues to be sticky. So the customers uh, and how they're behaving, at least on box, uh, we're still quite confident and we see that behavior and things are going well there. Um, on the B2B side, of course, we, we've got our eye first on Delta, now on Omicron. About 25% of our business traditionally was B2B servicing 
coffee rooms, pantries. And so that business is still rather muted or attenuated. Uh, and on the last part of our business, the software sales component, retailers all around the world now need e-commerce. It's not a nice to have, it's a need to have. So the pipeline there is very full. So that's kind of what we're seeing from, from our point of view, Julia. Yeah, fantastic. Um, on the 25% business to business, that's simply because uh, people aren't in the offices, they're not eating snacks, they're not ordering supplies and things. So that's what you're saying about that remaining muted, which, which makes sense to me, um, I'm assuming. How sensitive overall is the business to waves of the virus and how much people spend online? So uh, on the B2C side, kind of what we've seen in the data is that uh, people, you know, I would say overall, the kind of tops and the bottoms are probably a little bit more, uh, according to a statistical kind of uh, div of, of kind of the top or the bottom, um, uh, because, you know, folks are starting to get used to the virus, at least here in the United States. Um, uh, it's been with us for almost two years now. And so uh, people are getting about their lives, even though there is a second wave, uh, at least what we're seeing on the B2B side, as you can imagine, you know, uh, if there's no people in the office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if and there's no people in the office, much. then... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fingers crossed that changes in the early part of next year and we're in a position to be able to do it. It's not just about selling to businesses or selling to individual customers. And I mentioned this in the introduction. What we've discussed many times on the show is... What is also, I think, unique to your business and bought by others is the technology behind the scenes. Just explain what differentiates you and the technology that you provide and why this new partnership with Google, Google Cloud, is going to be so interesting. Yeah, you know, we've been on the show so many times, Julia, and every time, you know, I always talk about our basket value. So when you're selling <laughs> consumer packaged goods, it's really important to be able to um, uh, you know, ship a lot to someone's home uh, because you can't make money just shipping a single thing of seltzer water. So the technology we built all services that. So from the front end systems, the warehouse management systems, all the way to the physical robots uh, we've, we've, uh, we've built. And CNN has been in our fulfillment center kind of filming the robots before. Um, and so now retailers all, the, all around the world want that enterprise e-commerce in a box. And that's what we're really selling. And, you know, on the backs of that, we signed this great partnership with Google where not only, of course, we're going to continue to be on Google Cloud, but we're going to co-market our services. So uh, telling our customers for our software projects that, hey, GCP is a great, great, great platform they should consider. And then on the flip side, their e-commerce customers hopefully will be able to uh, uh, migrate over to Box as well. What percent of the revenues of the business does this represent today? And how big do you anticipate this coming, becoming? Uh, it could be pretty big. I mean, if you just look around the world, um, it's, it's no longer a nice to have, it's a need to have. Yeah. Last year, uh, it was 0% of the business. Uh, this is the first year that we began selling software. And already we're guiding Wall Street to about $17 million in software sales alone this year. So um, uh, we're pretty excited about where it could go because that's just year one. Watch this space. What about seasonal hiring? Um, so for us, uh, we've always kind of um, uh, done right by our consumers uh, and, and our, and our uh, frontline employees. So if you go out there and search for Box, half of what comes up is how we treat our folks on the front line. So we actually haven't had a lot of turnover there. And so um, we don't see the huge kind of spikes in need of, of hiring season, seasonal employees. But um, our frontline employees are, are sticking with us. The average hourly tenured employee at Box is uh, around two to three years. Yeah, and we've talked about this in the past. And I think what differentiates you as a leader as well is how you've helped your people along, paying for schooling. There's been all sorts of things along the way, and people can read about that too online. Um, that, I think, is critically important for 
of course, what happened in the past week, which is that you finally listing and you're now a public company. Talk to me about how that feels. Shay, how does that feel for your um, workers too? It's, um, it, it was, you know, a dream come true. And, and kind of what I told everyone here was the only word that, that I had was gratitude. You know, gratitude to our investors, our team, uh, gratitude to, to, to you, Julia, for having us on the show for, 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 for now years. Um, you know, it's just uh, a really dream come true, but it's really just the beginning. Now we have this base in order to, to build off of. And so um, I told everyone it was, you know, a great day that we could take off uh, and celebrate. But now the hard work begins and we earned uh, a starting line, uh, um, uh, I guess, beginning in this new world as a public company. You know, I know how hard you fought for this as well and that, you know, at times you've barely slept. So the idea that you had the day off is <laughs> kind of the day off. I'm sure it was like 24-7 in the run-up to it. But um, yes, the smile, the smile says everything. Now, speaking of ambitions, and you can tell me what, how you're going to utilize some of the money, but um, I think it's well documented that the grocery business is tough. Even a giant like Amazon with Whole Foods has found this particularly tough. What is it about your business and your capabilities that makes you think that um, immediate online grocery delivery is something that, that you can revolutionize? Yeah, it's just how we specialize. So everything does something well. Uh, uh, everyone does something well. And for us, it is online grocery. So uh, we've done this since the beginning in the shadows of all those big companies you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so from day one, we specialize not in selling everything, but just in this category. And the technologies, the basket values, everything else has been geared towards it. And I think that's what will make us successful. And just like they have ancillary businesses now, we have B2B, we have software sales. And so overall, you're starting to, uh, to see us uh, diversify a bit. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we're still core in online grocery. <laughs> Great to chat to you, as always. Keep in touch. We'll continue to uh, track your progress. And um, wow, what a journey. Congratulations again. Thanks. Yeah. A lot of work. Che Wong, co-founder and CEO of Boxer. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, the Israeli company which might have uncovered the holy grail of recycling, diverting waste away from landfill and into new products. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. It's a depressing reality that while many of us diligently sort out our recycling, the amount of waste that ends up in landfill is still shockingly high. It's estimated the world generates 2 billion tonnes of rubbish every year. And my next guest says 80% of that is dumped in open landfills and only 4% ends up recycled. The Israeli recycling firm UBQ has found a way to convert household waste into plastic pellets or powder, which can be recycled into new products like plastic trays, hangers or waste bins. Its company says it's raised $200 million in a new funding round to grow its operations and scalability here is critical. Tato Vigio is co-founder and co-CEO of UBQ Materials, and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you on the show. Those statistics say everything to me. I often think about that as I'm furiously sorting through everything, actually how much good I'm doing. You're basically <laughs> saying this can be turned into treasure and it can be monetized too. That is correct. Good morning, Julia. Thank you for having me this morning in your program. Uh, UBQ has developed a groundbreaking uh, technology that enables us to take uh, household waste, 100% of all materials that you throw into your garbage bin, 
and convert all of them together without the need of separation into a plastic replacement that is both sustainable and cost competitive. So yes, we can handle 100% of the residuals that will go to landfill and save landfills for our future generations. And just to be clear, it's, it's everything. It's food waste, it's paper, it's every kind of waste. Glass, for example, the, the paper packaging. What's the process that takes all of that and creates these pellets that then can be used uh, in other products? Well, if you see the, the composition of waste, typically you're talking about 85% organic, which would be the food residues that you're talking about, uh, dirty cardboard, paper, diapers, and mixed plastics, those that are recyclable and unrecyclable. We will take all those materials together and through an advanced uh, chemical reaction process, which is clean, uh, waterless, and energy efficient, convert them into one homogeneous composite material that, be, that, be, that behaves exactly like plastics, like common plastics that are made out of oil, just that ours is completely made out of waste. Oh my goodness. Wait, wait. So, I, I, so the science of this is really exciting me. What kind of chemical reaction that is waterless, <laughs> um, clean, as you said, and energy efficient, does that mean it has zero carbon footprint? Because surely some form of energy is required to to catalyze this chemical process. You're being quite coy. Yes. I want more information. <laughs> okay. Well, the, here we also have very good news because, uh-huh. um, yes, we, 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 don't use, we don't need to use any water because, uh, as you know, waste comes very humid. So we have enough right. humidity in the waste uh, to process it the way we do it. Uh, the chemical reaction goes at the particle level, so we don't need to go molecular. Therefore, we don't use high temperatures. And the beauty of it is that we're saving landfills. And when you throw organic material into landfills, they tend to decompose into methane. Methane is a very powerful gas, like 85 times more uh, toxic than CO2. So our total score is extremely positive. So we are the greenest thermoplastic material available today on the planet. Is anyone else doing this? And I'm assuming it's a patented process. So um, if you told me you'd have to do something terrible to me um, to keep it a secret. Um, (laughs) Is anyone else doing this? Or would you consider licensing the technology? Because, I mean, when I go back to the statistics that we introduced in the beginning, what you're doing, if it works, and I know you can address some of the scepticism, is great. But we need to be able to scale it up. We have to do this on a mass production level in order to really make a dent in the amount of waste we're creating. Would you consider licensing this technology? Well, Julia, what, yeah, what you're saying is exactly what we're trying to do. This capital funding will help us, uh, uh, you know, extend our, our footprint in other countries. Uh, we're starting with a plant in the Netherlands. Ah. We expect to continue expanding in, the Nether- in, in, in Europe and the United States, then in Asia and other countries. Definitely, we have to be aggressive if we want to have a uh, create a circular economy where human consumption lives in harmony with the planet, we do have a great solution. And uh, for us, it is very important to deploy this technology as fast as possible to end with landfills as soon as possible and and leave a better planet uh, to our kids. 
talk to me about those expansion plans, as you mentioned, because I was looking just at the list of what parts of the world generate most waste based on some of the data that we have. And actually, East Asia and the Pacific region comes incredibly high. And I know you have a partnership with Motherson, which is an Indian-Japanese partnership. Talk to me about what's going on there and the impact that you're having, because this is also part of the way that you scale up, not just creating factories in certain locations, but also with big businesses, surely. That's exactly uh, the, the, the aim of the company is to work with really with the, with the biggest global brands. Today, we're actually already uh, supplying material to Mercedes-Benz, to McDonald's, to Motherson, Mineti, and many other big players, big names. Not only brands, but also manufacturers, distributors, and resin producers. So our material can be integrated all along the, the product line. And uh, the carbon footprint of UBQ, or the footprint of UBQ, it will be as impactful as it can be the more we deploy factories around the world, which is exactly what we're trying to do. We want to have an immediate effect. We do have the technology, and now we need to deploy a lot of financial resources and, of course, human capital to be able to achieve this. We expect to have factories in most countries of the world in order to be able to convert the local waste into local UBQs uh, to supply local industries with their own waste. So that is the plan, and uh, we are heading to there. It sounds like a plan. It sounds like a mission. We can call it that. <laughs> cost. Absolutely. Let's talk about cost. For one of these companies that's buying these pellets in order to be able to utilize those in addition to the plastics that are being created for whatever it is that they're packaging, what's the added cost as a result of being so, cleaner? So UBQ is coming with an alternative uh, plastic material that can be used by current plastic industries in their machines with their current process, making the same products they did before with a very strong value proposition and we're price competitive. So basically, there's almost no question why not to use UBQ. We're coming with a sustainable circular material that is carbon negative and that can be basically used in any uh, durable product at the same price, but with a very strong sustainable value proposition. So that is what makes UBQ so attractive today, and that is why we're expanding so fast. Yeah, I mean, if it's comparable to other plastics, why wouldn't you if you can clean up your carbon footprint? I think this is crucial. What about path to profitability, Tato? How long is it going to take you to be profitable? Oh, well, a company that is expanding very fast typically puts a lot of its resources in that expansion. And of course, in the R&D, we want to come with new generations of sustainable bio-based materials like UBQ. But definitely, after our first large-scale plant in the Netherlands, we will already become a profitable company. And that will help us also deploy new plants in other places and be able to reach other corners of the planet, of course. <laughs> so we're talking a couple of years, just as a signpost. Well, we're talking uh, hopefully for uh, many years to come where, where, where our technology will be able to have an impact uh, to the world. Uh, the waste problem is huge. It's bigger than us. We'll do everything to others, whatever we can. And we will always welcome other technologies because definitely as population grows and economic conditions improve, uh, the problem is getting bigger. So yes, UBQ is coming with an amazing, revolutionary, one-of-a-kind technology, uh, but we, do, we need to do more. And now that Glasgow uh, came to life and there is this pledge of reducing methane by many countries, well, we're actually one of those uh, important solutions and they would love to see others uh, coming out uh, with, with other solutions because definitely yes. we, need, uh, we need to have a circular economy here to support 
uh, live in the future for our future generations. Yeah, we need more projects like this. And we'll come back. You'll come back and talk to me again because there has been some skepticism and there have been many failed projects that, that are heading in this direction. So um, fingers crossed this is one that fundamentally is a, a game changer. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Co-founder. Thank you, Julia. Of Thank you Materials. Thank you. More First Move after this. Welcome back to this week's Connecting Africa and a Rwandan-based organization that's doing literally that. Smart Africa aims to develop the continent's digital infrastructure. It hopes this will open up opportunities in Africa's booming fintech sector to more people. Take a listen. I'm Lassina Kony, the Director General of Smart Africa. I'm helping Africa to be transformed into a single digital market by 2030. Today, Africa stands for 39.8% of population connected. The average around the world and the planet, it's about 53%. That is one, one of the biggest challenges. Number two key objective is to uh, promote and facilitate doing business in Africa. The regulatory environment has to be adaptive. Smart Africa today, being a 32 country, every country has a flagship project. So basically we've taken the digital transformation, we've broken it down into pieces. Every country will be championing one specific project. So this approach, in a harmonized way, it ensures that no nation is left behind and we learn from each other. If you combine together in the planet all the suppliers of the fiber optic connectivity, it covers 95% of the world populations. So why connectivity is still an issue? It goes back to regulation for development. The regulation is very important. Ease up the regulations to be able to attract the private sector to come and invest in infrastructure, particularly in Africa, where we have close to 60% of our populations living in a rural area. However, affordability is an issue. And again, it takes me back to the second challenges, which is access to smart devices, which is very important. Once we have internet affordable in those regions, of course, there will be a booming. And that just wraps up the show. Stay safe, connect the world with Max Foster is up next and I will see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.